0: What up, this is Cortland from AndyHackers.com, and you're listening to the AndyHackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable, successful internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Steli Fd. Steli, welcome back to the Andy Hackers podcast. It's so awesome to be back. Thank you. It's awesome to have you back. You are the founder of a company called Close. You know more about sales than pretty much anybody that I know. And so today's episode is going to be all about sales. What should early stage founders know about how to sell? The thing about indie hackers is that most of us are developers and we're not exactly a group known for being enthusiastic about sales. In fact, most of us would prefer it if we had nothing to do with sales whatsoever. Uh, However, most of the successful founders, including developer founders that I've spoken to, have had sales play a very large role in their business. So it's crucial to learn how to sell. Uh, I will defer to you, Stella. you're the expert here. Where do we even start on this topic?
1: Yeah, where do we start? I think first and foremost, let's talk about like our relationship with selling, especially in the indie hacker community, right? Or when you're kind of maybe from a background that is more technical and less in the kind of sales or marketing world. I do think that sales has a bad rap. Uh, deserve in a kind of deserved fashion, right? There's there's a lot of people that I, a lot of my friends that are not coming from a sales background that uh, always kind of told me that when they think of salespeople and selling, it was just like their internal response was just like be, you know, it's just like uh, sleazy people. that are just like annoyingly persistent and just want to like, bully you into buying something you don't want, right? Uh, and so there's a lot of like, I think, internal resistance. And I think that that is really, um, that's the core of a lot of problems that can occur later on. If you think that selling and sales is just this fundamental, terrible thing, then you will not want to learn anything about it. You will not want to practice anything in it. And if you're a, somebody that is building things and want these things to be Brought to market and find a customer base, you're going to have to sell. Now, you might want to, you know, call it something different, but what you're going to be doing is you're going to be selling, right? In one way or another. Yeah. So I think first of all, I'd like to give a definition, like my definition when it comes to sales. To me, sales is really nothing else than result-driven communication. So if the two of us just chit-chat and there's no purpose, rhyme, or reason for us talking, we're just talking. The moment that there is an end goal in mind for one of us or both of us, Right. When I'm trying to convince you of something, when I'm trying to get you excited about something, when I'm trying to make you make a decision, whenever there is a purpose and an end result I have in mind while I am communicating with you and vice versa, we're now in the world of selling. Right. We're not just talking, we're selling. Right. And, and selling does not necessarily have to do with a financial transaction. Right. For people that have children, I have two boys. When you have children, you know, it's a never ending negotiation. Right. It's just like a never ending pitch of the parents. You're trying to sell their children on doing something or being into something, and the children selling the parents on some ideas that they have about <laughs> the world and what they want. And so, and there's so many different situations in life, even when it comes to like hiring people, is nothing else than a sales interaction. Finding a significant other, a lot of it is a sales interaction. You're communicating, trying to convince somebody of certain. Things that are good about you or certain things you want them to see in you that might be attractive or interesting to them. And so it's a, it's a never, never ending life to a larger degree is selling. Not all of it, but a good portion of it. So if it happens and if it's so ubiquitous and if it's so core to being successful with the products that you're building and the things that you're bringing to market, you might as well get good at it and understand how it works. And then you can do it well and you can do it with the right intentions without being sleazy, without being Uh, a terrible human being without, you know, doing things that are unethical, which I wouldn't recommend anyways to anybody in today's world.
0: So one of the things I see in a lot of indie hackers is a bent towards more mass marketing rather than individual sort of high touch sales conversations. People are really averse to selling it. It's not just because they think it's sleazy. It's because it seems hard and mysterious and not particularly scalable. You know, like how many of your product are you really gonna sell if you're relying on sales? And when you look at these big inspiring companies that you're trying to copy, you don't really see their salespeople. You see their marketing materials, you see their blog posted at the top of Hacker News, you see their advertisements and things that don't require a person to talk to another person. Why should I, as an indie hacker, not just build one of these types of businesses where I don't have to talk to anybody and my product just spreads via word of mouth or through channels that don't require talking to people?
1: Man, if you can build a product that sells itself, right? go ahead and do it and then come back and tell me about it. And I'm going to be your biggest fan anyways, right? I'm going to be like talking about you to all my friends and telling them about everything you've done brilliantly. I think the reality though is it's the same thing as like me saying, you know, I want to, let's say, lose a lot of weight and build a lot of muscle. Why should I be eating healthy stuff and working out a lot? Like, why can't I just take a pill And uh, (laughs) take take care of that problem that way. Well, because it's not necessarily, I get the appeal of the idea, but it's not necessarily reality, right? And uh, these solutions that are easy and require no effort from you and no change are usually truly bad solutions, right? And not really long-term good investments in, in your future, in your business. First of all, let me dispel the idea that there are these companies that have only kind of mass marketing and there's no sales team behind it. Most of the modern products, software products that you admire, you know, have massive sales teams behind them. A lot of times, because in today's world, it's kind of, it's a cool idea to say we have no salespeople, especially companies that have a massive amount of kind of technical audience or technical buyers. They like to you know, explain to the world, oh, we don't even hire salespeople here. But then they hire a bunch of people that what they do is selling, but they call them implementation engineers. They call them, you know, customer success engineers or something. But what they are doing is they're going visiting their largest customers, they're shaking hands, kissing babies, they're asking lots of questions, they're building relationships, they're making presentations, they're negotiating contracts, and they're closing deals, right? And so there's a lot of BS going on in the world of we don't need salespeople. And this might be too long ago for most of the kind of newer audience that's listening to this, but the OGs of the indie hacker community will appreciate this example. Yammer, which used to be kind of the Slack before Slack, was the poster child in B2B for we finally have built a company in the B2B space that is virally growing. Individual team members start using Yammer to chat with each other. And then more and more people that do it. And then eventually the company goes, oh, my God, all these employees are using this. Can we pay you money to get some control over it? Right, And that's how we grow. But then David Sachs, I think, is the, is the guy that, that started Yammer, one of the original PayPal mafia guys. When he was interviewed after they sold Yammer to Microsoft for an insane amount of money, they told him what was one of the hardest lessons they had to learn. And it was exactly this. He's like, well, we were telling everybody we don't need salespeople. We're doing this virally until we realized this isn't working without salespeople. <laughs> and then we had to hire a ton of them. And then we had to figure out how to manage them and deal with them. And then we started seeing success. He's like, I wish we, I wish we weren't so bought into that flawed idea in the beginning. Like, and we were like, we hold on to that idea for way too long because it was just such a cool idea, right? And we told everybody yeah. about it already. It's kind so, of like a humble brag, you know? Like, yeah. oh, my
0: company's so good, we, we just don't even need, salespeople. We don't and it's need like, even no, salespeople. People are incentivized to say that. You know, I never yeah. sleep, I work so hard, like, I don't need salespeople. <laughs> like so many things in the, in the sort of startup world and it's like actually not true.
1: It's sort of a virtual signaling in the start of the world. We don't don't even need salespeople. Our product is the selling itself. So the other thing that's more relevant, I think, to to the audience, more practical and tactical is this, like, why, like, selling one customer at a time, it doesn't scale. Even if we take this premise as as true, right, especially if you have maybe a product that is not an enterprise-level solution, which a lot of people won't have in the India Hacker community, it's more affordable in price. It's true. You might not want to, it might not be possible for you to sell your $10 a month subscription product one person at a time through pitching and negotiating with them, right? I get that. And that's absolutely correct. But in the early days, up until the point where you get to your first, let's say, 100 customers as a good benchmark, you not selling one-on-one is only going to make it harder for you to generate the level of customer intimacy, the level of customer insights to truly understand the psychology of your customer, the ideal profile of your customer, how to communicate with them, what convinces them, what moves them, that will then allow you to both build the right features of the product in the way that will get a a better response from the market, but also understand how to do sales in mass, which is marketing, right? Copywriting, how to explain the benefits of your product with words, how to design things that communicate in images that, that, and, and create the feelings that your buyers want to have and that will help them want to buy your product. These things, you cannot get secondhand insights, right? To me, it's like saying, you know, this idea, why can't I just put together a landing page Courtland, and then i 'll spend a thousand bucks on Google adwords and I will a b test the shit out of the copy and the design and then the data will tell me what to do I love that idea that's that's such a, such a pure idea. I like it I also want it to be true, but the reality is in the beginning when you don't have scale right when you might be able to get like you know a couple of hundred clicks on the landing page, just looking at numbers is not going to give you enough enough context enough dense enough signals to truly understand what is going on i'm telling you take your laptop and your landing page and go to a place where there's a bunch of people that could be your buyers like maybe it's a starbucks and then show somebody your landing page and tell them i'll buy you your coffee if you give me one minute of your time i just want you to look at my site and then tell me what it does right and tell me what you what you think about it and I'm telling you, there's no better medicine to our stupidity than reality, right? And reality that's context-rich. You could show somebody a screen and their facial expression is this. <laughs> <laughs> like they they look all confused and puzzled and they squeeze their eyes and they they scratch their forehead and, uh, in physical pain. And then they tell you, I, I think I like it. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know, I—I I, yeah, I think it's a cool idea. You should go with it. Right. And then you ask them, well, can you tell me what my idea is? Right. Well, how would you explain it to a friend? And they go, well, and then they go and they butcher it, right? They explain it in a way that pains you. Now that's something you will not, this is context that you will not get if you just send somebody to click a link, they see a landing page and they maybe click on see what's next or sign up or whatever. Or they just leave. You might not understand why they're confused. You might not understand, like when they scroll around on your website, you'll see the areas where they're confused, where they spend more time. You'll see the words they use. You show that landing page to four people and all of them come up with the same flawed summary of what you do and use the same words that you maybe used in your copy. And that might point you into like what you need to change about how you explain what you do in a way that will communicate better, more effectively. Now, showing five people in a coffee shop your landing page, that doesn't seem scalable, Right but it is going to be a lot more insightful, I guarantee to you, because the information you're getting is richer. You're not just getting an action, like a click. You actually can see the body language. You can hear the tonality. I could tell you, this uh, this is uh, good. Or I could say, this is good. And those are not the same statements. <laughs> it's not the same amount of like positive signal. And so the reason why we don't want to do these things, I don't believe is because it's quote unquote not scaling. I feel that's a bullshit excuse, if I'm honest. I think the reason why we don't like that is because it's a much harsher feedback loop with reality. And we all don't like when the feedback isn't good. And most of the times it isn't. <laughs> for most of the things that we do, the feedback loop is quite harsh. It's much nicer for my emotions to see, oh shit, man, I did 400, I got 400 clicks and just two signups. Is this good? Is this bad? What should I change? It's a much softer thing to direct with than going to a coffee shop, showing my thing to 10 people and everybody's telling me this sucks. It's much more, I'm going to get a much stronger emotional felt reaction of rejection and failure. And we all like to avoid that. Like it just doesn't feel good to any real human being. And so I think the reason why we don't want to do the one-on-one sales in the beginning is not that we truly don't believe it scales because it doesn't have to. In the early days, you don't have to scale. You don't have anything worth scaling yet. Don't worry about scaling. You have to try to discover and uncover something that is valuable and that people want. And to do that, you will have to spend time one-on-one with people. And sales, I think even Jessica from YC had written a blog post about why sales is more important than marketing in the early days in a startup. Think about that. That blew my mind for the YC community to be like advocating for this. And why? Like Her her central thesis in that blog post, in that article was that sales is such, is uh, so direct in its feedback loop. It's so less open to interpretation. Like either somebody says, yes, I'm buying or no. Marketing can be a lot softer. Like they liked it. They clicked on something, right? They, whatever they, they hit a like button, they retweeted whatever, my ad or something. There's so many more things that we can feel good about that aren't a true, clear result. Yes, no, bought, didn't buy. And so sales in the early days where we're really looking for strong signals on what to do next, I think is a, is a beautiful tool and it doesn't have to scale at all.
0: I love that. So to summarize, it doesn't really matter if sales doesn't scale in the early days. You should probably still be doing it, mostly as a learning tool, because there's really no better way to learn what kind of product you should be building, what your marketing copy should even say, than having these conversations with people. And it's important to go into it with sort of a mindset where your primary goal is to discover the truth. You're not trying to confirm what you already think, but you're trying to discover the realities. Because early on in those early phases of your startup, the biggest risk is that you just build the wrong thing because you don't understand what people want. Let's talk about this process of of sales sort of switching over from being uh, a way that you learn to a way that you convince other people to use what you're doing. One of the first things that a lot of the founders that I talk to begin with is sending cold emails. Like I never went to a coffee shop, for example, to show people indie hackers. (laughs) Maybe I should have, it would have been really easy to do. But you know, I prefer to just sit in my apartment and, and send emails to people. I've talked to so many other founders who also started their companies by sending something like 50, 100 the first person I ever had on this podcast sent a thousand cold emails in the course of three months to get his business off the ground. What is your advice for your founders trying to convince the very first people to use what they built? What are some tactics for for being persuasive?
1: Yeah, I love that. I, so I think in the very early days, uh, you can use the advice I got from an investor once about fundraising and use apply the same principles to selling, which is you know you ask for money oftentimes you'll, what you'll get is advice. You'll ask for advice, maybe you'll get lucky and get some money. So what I would suggest as a what I've used a lot of times and I taught a lot of founders to use successfully and apply successfully is that in the super early days, when you're trying to get to your first 10, first 20 customers, it can be a much better kind of approach to reach out to potential buyers. And instead of telling them, I've built something and I wanna find my first customers, do you wanna give me your time and attention and figure out if you wanna purchase, which is kind of a big ask. Ask them for advice, which is something you should be valuing above their money, anyways, right? And you might get their money. So what I would do is I would ping somebody and say, "Hey, you know, you, you know, I've seen that you've been in this industry for a long time. I've built something new for people like you." And what I'd love to do is maybe as a founder, I can get 10, 15 minutes of your time to show you the technology that I've developed and get some advice from you as an expert, as somebody that's been in this industry forever. I have learned that people love to give advice. Everybody wants to be an expert. Everybody wants to give advice. And people are much more open to talking to a founder about that technology startup idea and give them some feedback. That's, that seems like fun to people usually. So what you do is you jump on a call and you don't lie. That's truly, that should be the number one purpose that you have. You show them what you do. You tell them, this is something I built for people like you. This is why I built it. This is how it works. You, as an expert in being you, I'm not you, right? You tell me, what does that look like? Would you want to buy this? What about it sucks? What about it didn't think about? It? And the beautiful thing about that interaction is that they're going to be a lot more open to you with their feedback. they'll They'll tell you because they don't feel like they have to keep their guard up. They don't feel like this is a sales call. They're just going to tell you the harsh, brutal truth, right? right. Now, yeah, I get why you wanted to build this, but let me tell you something about this industry. Nobody can buy this type of software because my company is not allowing me XYZ if you don't know do this, this, and that, the other. Wow. Now that might not feel good to you, but you'll get the truth. People will give you unfiltered advice. And, and you don't want to ask for advice from investors or experts. You want to ask for advice from potential customers, the type of people that you want to purchase the product. Now, there's a couple of potential ways this call could go. If they are you know, hypercritical, they hate everything you did, they think you suck, they think the software sucks, they think it has no future, nobody would ever buy it, they just crush you. There's no sense in trying to get that credit card. <laughs> there's no sense in even pitching it. you You've heard all these things that they would why they wouldn't want to buy it. Now you can ask them, what would I have to change? Is there anything you could ever imagine me changing that would make you interested? Right? That's an important question to ask. But let's say that they're so critical they can't see anything they could ever find value in what you're doing. Cool. Just keep it moving. Tell them if it's cool to keep in touch with them as you change what you're doing to see if their mind changes about this and see if everybody you talk about has the same opinion. Now if they talk to you and they like some things that you're doing and maybe find that you have to change some things. Take that into account, but now start changing the conversation a little bit and ask them, hey, if I added these features that you told me about or made these changes, would you truly believe this is a compelling product? Yeah, I think it'd be amazing then. Cool. Would you be willing to buy? Like, Would that be enough? If I built these things and do these things that you just told me about, would you want to be a customer? That now takes the conversation from a theoretical thing to a very concrete proposition for them it's going to change how they're going to respond and now there's going to be a new layer of learning they might go yeah i would buy if you do this i would lo- i would love to be the first customer now that's amazing now we got something they might also though t- tell you no if i'm honest even if you do these things i couldn't buy and now we're in the world of harsh truth again right why <laughs> why you just told me if i did these things it would be amazing yeah, but I don't have the budget. Yeah, but whatever. I already bought software for three years. And now I can ask and learn about the buying process. Do you find that everybody like you buy software for three, four years at a time? So could this be like a problem I will have and encounter all the time when I'm trying to get customers? Like just trying to learn more about that. And then uh lastly, some calls, hopefully, once in a while, you get somebody that gets really excited and enthusiastic about what you do. And you could ask them, hey, it seems like you really love what I do and what I have today. What would it take for you to become one of my earliest customers? Somebody that might help me build out the roadmap, give me feedback, kind of be an advisor. And they might just go, yeah, we're ready to go. Like, I I, want to buy this. I want to be a customer. I want to be an advocate. I want to be a champion for this. And that's incredible. But the conversation starts as advice and turns into sales if it makes sense and when it makes sense versus Going so harsh and cold into the you've never heard from me, I've built something nobody has ever bought or used. But do you want to give me your time, your valuable time, so I can try to get your money? Like that just doesn't sound that sexy or that cool or that fun to people, and rightfully so, probably.
0: Yeah, it's a very easy email to uh, just mark as spam or delete from your inbox. Yeah, how much of this is quantity versus quality? Like, if I'm an early stage founder, should I be sending you know hundreds of emails and talking to hundreds of people, or? Should I just try to have like really amazing conversations go as deep as I can and learn as much as I can about selling so that my conversations are just better?
1: In general, I mean, the answer is always it depends. There's a lot of variety, but I would 99% of the time I would tell you you try to find a balance between both things. It's a flawed idea to think all I'm going to do is I'm going to email a million people and then surely those numbers are so high a few hundred people will buy and want to jump on a call and it's going to be all amazing. It's not. You're just going to... Get your email and domain blacklisted uh, and spammed and nothing really good will come out of it. The flip side is a flawed idea as well, though. Oh, I'm just going to do so much research that I'm going to find the three perfect humans on this planet. And if I talk to these three, everything will fall into place because they're just the perfect... And no, it's not going to happen either. you just like, you just want to mess around and feel safety through research and time wasted before you jump on a call with just too few of people. You want to find a good balance between both. Like I typically advise people, like sales is both a quantity and quality game. But in the early days, I would advise you send, commit to sending 50 emails a day, 50 emails. You can research 25 to 50 emails a day from people that are good quality, right? Um That's not an insane amount. But you want to do that and commit to that for at least a month or two where you're doing it five days a week, right? And the reason why you're doing that is if you send 25 to 50 people a message, if you do a good message to good people, you'll get, you know, three, four, five, six of them to respond, Right? If your first email sucks and you get nobody to respond, now you just wasted one day and 25 or 50 emails. Now you can experiment and change the email, right? If there's something about your email, if you're too successful and everybody wants to talk to you, awesome, stop, right? Uh, have the, your first 25, 30 conversations and then decide what you want to, you, do you want to hire somebody to keep doing emails since it's so successful? But you want to do consistent action at a certain level of activity because usually there is going to be a funnel and the funnel is not going to be like, you know, converting 90% of people you're reaching out to. That's not going to happen. It's going to be a much smaller percentage. But you want to do it kind of daily so you can adjust, you can improve, you can tweak. You want to find a nice enough balance where you do quality work, but you don't just rely on quality and think you could just email three people and these three people will become each a million-dollar contract for you. And you know if you just spend a year researching those people, you're never going to have to do any kind of quantity game. It's going to be a balance of both, I think.
0: So I'm searching my inbox right now for some sales emails that I sent when I was running Hackers as a for-profit business back in 2017. I was a total sales amateur, still am, so I had really no idea what I was doing. But the goal was to try to land sponsors for my podcast, for my mailing list, and for my website. So here's one that I sent to a company called SparkPost. They're an email marketing company. And I sent this to somebody in the marketing department. We'll just call her Jennifer. I said, Hi Jennifer, I run the Indie Hackers blog slash newsletter slash podcast. And I recently came across Spark Post while looking into sending email notifications for my community forum. After seeing your four developers by developers features, I would love to find a way to work together to get Spark Post in front of the Indie Hackers audience, which consists almost entirely of developers and entrepreneurs. Let me know if you are interested. And she responded, Hi Cortland, thanks for reaching out. I would love to chat with you more. About this to see how we could work together. Do you have time for a call Beautiful. on Thursday or Friday? And she sent me some times. So instantly it worked out. Uh, but I sent almost that same email, but slightly tailored to depend to pertain to the different companies to a bunch of other people. And I'd say I only got success maybe one out of four or five times. So what are your thoughts, Stelly, on that email? What could I have done better? Um, what did I do well?
1: Well, first, let me ask you, what was the subject line? What did you say in the subject line?
0: The subject was literally just Spark Post plus ND Hacker. So <laughs> their company name plus my company name.
1: Plus your company name. All right. So that's not a bad subject line, right? So first of all, I always focus on the subject line first because um, if people don't open your email based on the subject line, it doesn't really matter what the email says, right? It doesn't exist. So, um, so what you did is kind of industry standard. It's not bad, but, but now, By now, I think it's overused. So I would assume that the open rates are much lower for your company name plus my company name, right? You know, what I would suggest in this kind of case where it's sponsorship, you know, in subject lines, what I found to work well is something that raises curiosity without lying. So you make a little bit of a promise that makes somebody curious, and then you're delivering on that promise in in the text. So maybe it'd be something like, you know, let's say... Let's say the indie hacker community at, at, at that point is 1,000 people, right? Like 1,000 people that are downloading the, the, the podcast episodes, right? That's early days or so 500 people even. Say, I have 500 developers that might be interested in your software. Uh, 500 developers, question mark? Like that could be a good it's short Right. It's, a question mark is like five hundred developers. If, if for me, if somebody, if I have a subject line in my inbox that says a thousand salespeople question mark, I'm opening that. I'm just I'm not sure what it is, but I am curious right now. Right, I want to know a little bit more. So, and then it can say, hey, I have a community of these people, highly engaged, highly smart. They're all building something, and they're all building email lists. I'm looking for one partner to recommend to my community that is growing that they should use to build their business and build their email list around. I've heard some good things about you guys. I'd love to jump on a call and explore if this is going to be the right fit for my community. And if my community is the right fit for you, if you guys would want to be in front of my community. something along those lines, right? I haven't thought this through too carefully. But the subject line would be something around uh, maybe, you know, the number of audience that you have, right? Mm-hmm. With a question mark that means, is this interesting to you? Do you want to talk to these people, right? Do you, is... And then I would tell them a little bit, the value proposition would be like, here's an audience that could be great buyers, And your product might be great for them. At this point, we both don't know if that's true, but I want to find the answer to this. Like, do we want to talk to explore and get to a decision if this could be the right audience for you guys and if your tool is the right tool for my audience, right?
0: Okay, so the call to action on your email is very specific. It's, do you want to hop on a call? You're driving them to get on the phone with you as fast as possible. Why is that important? And is that something you need to do in your first email as opposed to several emails later?
1: Yeah, no, I would, I would go for one call to action in the first email. In this specific case, I would want to jump on a call. And the reason why I would want to jump on a call again is because I want to learn more than just yes or no at this stage right? When I, so if I start a podcast, I want to do sponsorships. I don't know anything about sponsorships. I don't know how marketing departments decide how much to sponsor. Where's the budget coming from? How do they do the math internally? Like I want to learn all these things. I don't just want to hear yes or no. So in a conversation, I can ask so many more questions and learn so many more things that then helps me shape the next email that I will send or who I'm going to send the next email to, right? So a, a conversation can be an amazing tool for me to learn and to even maybe they even volunteer answers or information I would have never asked. And I go, oh, this is how you ha huh, interesting. Okay. Like it's just, it can be a very powerful tool if you encounter it with curiosity. So in the earliest, I would always try to talk to people in person if possible on a on a call in this case. And I would make the call to action very simple. I would not ask open-ended questions. You know, respond and let me know your thoughts. Now, that's very open-ended. They have to respond and write out thoughts. What are their thoughts? How do they want to articulate those? That's a lot of questions they need to figure out on their own, which usually leads to postponing this to later, which then means never. So I like things that are simple decisions, right? I'd like to jump on a call. I think 50 minutes is plenty How about Tuesday at 9 a.m. or Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time? Just let me know which of these two choices works. The beauty of the alternative oftentimes is that I can just look at my calendar at these two spots and see if one is free versus if you tell me, tell me any time next week works for you. Now I have to look at my calendar and decide where out of all these three spots do I really want to have this conversation. We could just introduce a little bit more friction so oftentimes they'll get less response rates. If you reach out to a highly technical crowd, giving them your calendar link or something, your scheduling link could be good, but sometimes people don't like that. So it depends on who you're reaching out to. But one call to action at the end that's very specific where people just have to make a decision. And sometimes when people don't respond, one little hack that I'll share here, and I have a lot more hacks. There's a... There's a book that we're that we just released, kind of the startup sales uh handbook that has like these email templates, these call scripts, all that stuff for free for everybody that's listening and wants to have that. Just send me an email, stelly at close.com, just say book, and I'll uh indie hacker book or something, and I'll know who you are, how you've gotten into my inbox and what you want. I'll send you a link that has uh, has that book with all that information. But one beautiful little hack that fits on this is the one two three hack where Sometimes when I try to reach somebody multiple times and I don't get a response, I will send them an email and give them three choices and just ask them to hit reply and give me a number: one, two, or three. Right? I did this recently, not even in a sales context. I had a person, really important person that uh, position that we wanted to hire for. That person had worked with somebody I admire, a founder that's a YC founder that has built a billion-dollar business. I wanted to ask that founder, for a, a jump on a reference call with that founder and go, hey, you work with this person really closely. Would you recommend me working with him? I emailed that founder again and again and again, not getting any response. Eventually, the founder responded to me and said, sorry, I don't have time right now. And then I replied to that response, I get it. Just please give me one more reply with one, two, or three. One means you've worked with this person. She is amazing. You would hire her for any position, any company. You love her. Number two is you work with her. The relation was good. Depending on position, depending on context, you might want to work with her again. And number three is you'd rather not say. And he replied with three. Got it. Just send me a three. And I was like, That's all all you needed to hear. (laughs) That's all I needed to hear. Thank you so much. Right. And this one, two, three thing, I've used this in a lot of sales situations. A lot, like, a lot of people have now kind of stolen this, this little idea from me. It's such an effective tool because you can write out a scenario that they don't have to write out anymore, which is a big point of friction. And they can just go, hit reply, it's four. Like four is it. And a lot of times in sales it could be you're really interested but need more time, you're not interested at all, or you didn't have the time to check this out and right now is really bad but you want to hear from me again in a month in a quarter whatever right and people really appreciate that i had uh, many people have sent me replies where people wrote out a whole thing that was like oh my god this was the greatest email i've ever gotten i would it's love so to get that awesome. like that yeah cuz it's yeah, so is- like when
0: you're you're checking your email like you don't No one wants to be checking their email. You always have more important stuff to do. You don't like someone sends you something. Like if they put a bunch of work on your plate, you don't want to take like 20 minutes of your day to respond because some random person decided to put that work on your plate. But if they did that, like it's so much easier just to be like, Oh, thank you. Like it's three, you know, I, I would love to respond, but I don't have time. Send me more information or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So back to talking about sort of this cold outreach process. One of the things that I found talking to people and through my own experiences is that it's much more lucrative to sell to bigger companies, usually. They have more money to spend, they have better processes in place for basically agreeing to deals and spending their cash. But as an indie hacker, it's kind of intimidating to sell to big companies. What are your thoughts on that, Steli? Is it, is it sort of a misconception that if you're just starting out, you shouldn't sell to the enterprise? And if you want to sell to bigger companies, are there any special techniques you should keep in mind?
1: Yeah, so again, the answer truly is it depends. I do think that you should, as a founder, you should not be afraid of any potential customer, right? You should really be open-minded, open-hearted, and always confident, even in especially in the early days, which is kind of hard, right? Because you're like, I'm nobody. Nobody knows me. I'm not even a startup. It's just me in my pajamas. Like, I have nothing really to show for. How can I, where do I get confidence from? I don't know. A lot of times we have, like, you have to find something in yourself that tells you, I am valuable. I am building something I believe will create value. And I, yes, there's weaknesses that I have in the sense that I'm an indie hacker, but there's great strengths that I have that I need to focus on as well. I can move so much faster. They're talking to the most knowledgeable person in the world around my founder. You're the founder, right? And most likely once you've worked on something for even just three, four, five months, you know so much more about this little niche thing than the potential buyers. They don't think about this all day long. They don't build these solutions. They they're not experts in this field. So you can really bring something great to the table, and you need to know that, and you need to feel that. And especially if you ever get a meeting, a lot of times people are so nervous. They're like, oh my god, I'm going going to this huge headquarters and this this billion dollar business, and here I am, this nothing of a person. <laughs> you know, like, you go all deflated into the meeting, just like oh my god. I'm nobody and these people are so important. No, no. There's a reason they took the meeting. When somebody's at the table, at the table can be on a phone call, it could be replying to your emails. They're at the table. It means you have something of interest to them. You bring something of value to them, right? You might be able to move faster. You might be more knowledgeable, more creative, more flexible. You have value. So you need to feel that and you need to act with that kind of confidence to make big companies and big buyers also confident in doing business with you right? Nobody's gonna buy from you because you're so humble and nobody's gonna buy for you because they are, they feel a little bad for you because you're lacking confidence. They're like, let's buy from this good person to like boost up their confidence and their self-esteem. Like nobody wants to do that, right? They want to feel like, wow, this person knows what they're doing and we want to be in business with them. So that's important to know. Now, I think at times it depends on what you're selling and what the buying cycle is. Uh, if I would recommend you to do that from day one, in year one or in year five, right? It depends on like how uh, how complicated it is. So the here's the big thing. I talked a little bit about like you should be confident and you should look at even big companies on kind of a equal level. Like we could be equal partners. Nobody is worth more than me. I bring different things to the table than they do, but they are slow and they're outdated and they're like lazy in some ways and they're like, uh, they can't move fast and they have all these, like these are negatives that they have. Like you should be aware of them as well. So that's important. The other thing that's important to understand is it honestly doesn't make a difference. If you sell to IBM or to Mary around the corner, IBM doesn't exist as a single unit entity. It's not a, IBM is not like some kind of a logo with hands and feet and a credit card that makes <laughs> decisions. IBM is nothing else than a collections of Mary's and John's and Bob's and what well, it's just a bunch of humans. It really doesn't make that much of a difference. There's no, kind of completely different beast that you're dealing with. No, it's humans. Now, the difference is, if you go and sell to Mary, you're dealing with one human being. If you sell to IBM, you might have to deal with 40 human beings. And the problem with human beings is that on an, in and on themselves, one human being is a complex organism with opposing ideas and thoughts and feelings and the desires and fears. If you have to deal with 40 people it's much more complicated because a lot of these people want very different things. A lot of these people want things that are in complete opposite, in conflict with each other, right? So you have to work so much harder. And this is what why enterprise sales takes so much longer because you have to navigate through the sea of different humans The person has different needs. Maybe I just care about my promotion or I care about not losing my job. My department has certain needs. Our department needs to hit certain quarterly numbers, and we need to be better than this other department. And then the business has certain needs. And a lot of times, indie hackers or startup founders, they go and pitch large organizations with this flawed idea, as if it's one entity. Here's why my product is going to save IBM 5%. Well, I don't care. I'm Bob. Tell me how this is going to make Bob's life better. Tell me how this is going to make Bob's career better. Tell me how this is going to not risk my life, my salary, my mortgage. Like, address my needs first. Then address my department's needs, right? My team's needs. And then, if it's also good for the whole organization around the world, cool, right? Thumbs up. That's nice. But that's the, at the end of what I care about. And I think we as founders at India Hackers, you're so associated with the product and the company that you, we only think, is this good for our company? Is this good for my company, for my startup? Is this good for my product? We are so associated with what we do that we don't differentiate between our career, our needs, our department and the business. But in large organizations, people make that differentiation and you need to be aware of it. And so you need to just sell on more levels and to more people. So usually it takes a lot more time. Now there's certain departments and certain purchases that can go quick, right? And they have budget and it's easy for them to give you, but a couple of thousand bucks is like nothing to them, right? It doesn't, doesn't even show up on anybody's radar, right? And so you get, get somebody to give you a 4K payment where if you wanted to go to individuals, it would take you forever to get that much money from people. But, uh, but it, it, I would always make it dependent on like how long will it typically take for me and to how many people would I have to talk to get this big company to purchase something from me? And if it's too long, it just might be something you cannot finance in the early days, even if the return is really great. But you should never not approach a big company because you think you're too small. You think you're not important enough or because you think that. It's going to be fundamentally different to sell to them because it's a organization of complexity and, and, and it's, it, no, it's just going to be a bunch of people, right? And they are just like you and other, any other bunch of people. It's just going to be a few more people you have to deal with. So that might complicate things.
0: One of the things that I found weird when selling is that I never really knew if I was doing it the right way. Like I'd be on a call with somebody and I'm like, you know, did I bring the right materials to this call? Am I asking the right questions? How do I sound compared to somebody else they've dealt with? Because this is my first time really. Uh, And I think that really hurts your ability to be confident and be persuasive. Uh, Steli, how do you prep for a sales call? What kind of materials did you bring to the table? What kind of research did you do? And how do you make sure that you can be persuasive and be confident?
1: So two things. One, don't worry about it too much, Right. Um, it's not about, like, sales really doesn't have to be, you don't have to be perfect. If you misspeak once or if you say something and it's a bit weird, don't get over self-critical. Oh, my God, I'm not as charismatic as I could be. I'm not like, I don't sound like the perfect salesperson. None of this really matters at the end of the day. I think that what you should bring as preparation into the call is you should have clarity on what the purpose of the call is and what the outcome should be at the end. What is the conversion? What is the decision we want to make? What is the things we want to learn? Like, and you should structure a beginning, a middle, and an end. You should have some level of clarity. How do you start the call? So you have some safety there. What should happen during the middle of the call typically? And how do we end the call? Because if you have clarity on these three steps, it's going to give you a guiding post if you're progressing in the right way. Or if the conversation goes completely off track, it's going to give you a reminder of, wait a second, we're talking about the weather for 30 minutes right now. <laughs> I just got 15 more minutes and I didn't address any of these things I want to accomplish. I need to steer the conversation back to this. So you should have clarity on these things and never get to a point in the call where you're like, well, huh, what should we talk about now? I don't really know. Like you, you, you should design an experience and design a call with a purpose in mind. Then. At the end of the call, you had a goal. You wanted to learn certain things, you wanted to share certain things, and you wanted to get to some kind of a decision at the end. Just ask yourself, did we learn these things? Did we talk about these things? And did we make a decision, yes or no, right? Were they ready to get to that next step in the process? And if they're not ready to get to the next step, or if you didn't learn these things, then the next call there's room for improvement. You need to improve what you do, your focus, the way you communicate, whatever else it is. And you could always ask your prospects and customers for feedback on that. Listen, you don't need a sales guru in your life to teach you the the, the dark arts of selling. Your customers can teach you everything you need to know. Just use them not just as pocketbooks and credit card holders, but use them as play, people that can teach you how to do what you do better. Ask somebody at the end of a sales conversation, especially if it doesn't go well. There's nothing really to lose. They tell you, no, I don't want the next step. I'm not interested. There's nothing worse that can happen. It already was a failure of a call. Ask them, hey, real quick, if I could get your honest advice for two minutes. You know, I'm a founder. I'm an engineer. I'm a developer. I'm a designer and background. I'm not really, I don't feel like I'm good at the, these kind of presentation meetings, conversations. Could you give me advice? Help me out here. What could I have done better? What, what what was bad about this conversation? What was bad about my presentation or demo? Um, what would you advise me to improve? You'd be surprised. If you make yourself vulnerable, if you open up, and if you ask for help, people will trip over themselves to run to your rescue and to give you feedback. So they go, oh, no, 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 you did well. And, and then they're going to give you feedback. You know, honestly, you shouldn't talk about this. You know, when you sell to buyers like us, you really need to have this prepared. And then right. they'll tell you. They will tell you.
0: So sales and, is kind of a learning experience, not just for what kind of product you should build, but also for how you should even sell. <laughs> They'll help yes. you become a better salesperson if you just ask.
1: Think about selling just like another product. You start with an MVP, and if you just learn enough and are open enough, you're going to iterate, iterate, iterate until you have a sales process that works. And that, that sales process buyer fit, if you want to call that that, right? It's not nothing else than a product. It needs experimentation. Nobody knows these things right out of the gate. Now, obviously, if you're an experienced developer, you're going to be able to build an MVP maybe faster, think about certain things already and like not make certain mistakes that you've made in the past. But just even if you do something for the very first time. If you move fast and if you're willing to make mistakes and if you're willing to learn, you'll iterate, iterate, iterate and eventually you're going to land somewhere where people find value in what you're doing where you find some success. It's the same thing with sales calls, sales presentations, sales negotiations.
0: Well, listen, Steli, it's been awesome talking to you. You've given us just a tidbit of your vast wealth of sales knowledge. I know you mentioned an ebook early on, a link for that. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find that and also where they can just go to find more about what you're up to and information about sales in general?
1: Yeah. I mean, the simplest way to find it is just send me an email, steli at com. Just put in indie book, uh, startup book, and I'll send you a link, uh, with all the information. And if you have any questions after this episode, Hey, I'm an indie hacker and this is my number one problem right now, or I really messed this negotiation up, or I try to pitch and really like this terrible thing happened, or I have this lack of clarity or challenge around that. Just let me know about these things. If you just want the book, just send me book in the subject line. I'll know who you are, at com, and I'll send you the book. But if you have any questions, feedback, or if anything you heard didn't make sense or you need more, just let me know and I'll send you all the resources and try to help as much as I can.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Steli. Thank you so much. Listeners, Steli is a super generous guy. So I really encourage you to take him up on his word and email him to get a copy of this ebook or sales advice whenever you need it. Also, if you want to give back to the podcast, I think that's probably the best thing you can do. Reach out to the guests that I've had on, hit them up on Twitter or over email, just tell them that you heard them on the show, that you learned a lot, and thank them for coming on. I am also on Twitter. I'm at C.S. Allen, C-S-A-L-L-E-N, and I really appreciate hearing from you guys as well. So if you learned something useful from the podcast, let me know, or if you have any suggestions at all, for guests I should bring on, topics that I could cover, ways that I could make the show better. I am all ears. It's hard to get feedback on a podcast, so I love it when you guys reach out to me on Twitter. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.